Welcome to the Speakeasy Crime Cafe podcast, where we speak to some of the most amazing people that you'll ever meet. The people that I bring to you have lived through or experienced something most of us never will. I'm your host, Michael Merson. Again, welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today at the Speakeasy Crime Cafe, I got a special guest, Lou Velosi, a retired ATF agent that spent 26 years on the job with the ATF where he's worked undercover. So someone got those, you know, when that got there and they opened those containers, whoever was on the receiving end got a couple of Matchbox Lexus cars. You guys have a good laugh on that. Absolutely, man. And actually the, the, the leader of that operation contacted me the case was still ongoing and said man you know uh something happened you know with those with those three suvs you play dumb and i said hey man listen i said we had a deal i kept up my part of the deal if you can't get your shit together i said man i hope you're not going to get me jammed up i said if you you can't you know put get, it back get on get him done. yeah I, I absolutely put it back on him yeah and he was like okay bye you know, and that was it. So, yeah. Did, did yeah. you ever work another deal with him? Or yeah, yeah. He, you know, they were. It was actually in that storefront operation. We were freight forwarders, um, which was incredibly difficult because I had to learn how to be a freight forwarder. A freight forwarder. Yeah, you know, it was an import-export business at the port. We had a huge 10,000-square-foot warehouse and offices that were done up like we were, you know, international, which we, you know, we had three businesses in one. We had a freight forwarding business, which was kind of an import-export. Uh, we were couriers. We, we delivered goods to Columbia. And we had a tobacco warehouse. So, we, you know, we had upped our game. Now, I, I wasn't dealing with street guys. I was dealing with organized crime. And if you don't know the lingo... Right. If you don't know the terminology, when you're talking with these guys, the customs forms that need to be filled out, uh, all the shipping lingo, shipping terms. And, you know, we had computers that would follow the, you know, freight forwarders. When they put something on a on a ship and it's say it's going to Africa, you know, that's all tracked via satellite. And they, they can see everywhere that that ship goes, where it is and all that. So we had to have all that technology in there. It was incredibly complicated. You know, we had forklifts running all day. And I mean, it was a setup that if you walked in that place, there's no way you're thinking this is a law enforcement operation, you know? And so that made our jobs easier. Well, I mean, looking at you, you don't look like the typical law enforcement officer. I mean, you got the tats going up. Did you have all that when you were on? I mean, the, the tats and everything on yeah, the arm, yeah. sleeved out and... Yeah, I mean, I, I got tats everywhere. I went through all the looks. Um, you know, I had really long hair. I had my head shaved. I had the ZZ Top beard. You know, I had all the ink. I had 10 earrings in each ear. But I'll tell you what about that. That's not what makes you an undercover agent, right? You know, and that's what I've said before. It's I said not. It's, it's, it's all about your personality. Any jerk-off can make himself look like a scumbag, Right. I mean, you can, anyone can grow a beard and get the earrings and get inked up, grow your hair out or whatever the look is you're going for. Um, it's, it, but it's not about that. If you don't have game, these guys will sniff you out in a second. It's, it's actually, 
a it's a mental challenge is what it is. It, it's whose game is better. And if my game is better than yours, you're going to prison at the end of the day. That's what it's about. It's psychological. Um, it, you know, it's not about the look. And some of the baddest guys I ever worked on, they didn't have some crazy look. A lot, of, most of the bad guys don't have some crazy look to them. And uh, you know, I learned that pretty early on that it's not about the look. I'm not saying it doesn't help in some cases, but you'll get sniffed out right away if you don't have game. If you can't talk the talk, they'll sniff you out. It's all about playing the part. It's about how you carry yourself, yeah. right? How you portray yourself. You know, what? how good is your hustle? Can, you anyone... make, can I make you want to be part of my hustle? That's undercover work, right? I'm coming to you with a hustle. I got to make you want to be a part of my hustle, right? So... After, you know, after we shake hands and introduce ourselves, you know, the whole look thing, that's out the window. It's about your hustle. Has anyone ever called you out new in your history that anyone said, no, you're a cop and walk away? Never. 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 It's amazing. No. And again, and I never portrayed myself as some big tough guy that that wasn't because that's not my personality i kept everything as close to reality as i could keep it even from the undercover names i picked were neighborhood names and you know i i was never some you know big tough guy bully guy or uh you know the strong silent type or anything you know i, I was a talker i was a hustler and I, I kept it as real as possible i wanted to make these guys be a part of my hustle you know because at the end of the day you can infiltrate the Hell's Angels, right? You right. could infiltrate the Hell's Angels if you if you really wanted to, but and and actually get that patch on your back. That doesn't put anyone in prison. That doesn't that doesn't solve. We don't investigate organizations because they're organizations. We investigate credible allegations of violations of the law. So I have to put food on the table at the Makes end. Sense. Evidence. Right. It's not about getting accepted into the gang. Right. It's about, you know, what crimes are they committed? Are they committing? And what kind of evidence can I gather during my undercover work to stop them from committing these crimes and put them in prison? That makes sense. That's the yeah. easiest explanation. I've, I've talked to undercover guys before, and that's probably the best you know, explanation I've ever gotten from anyone about what you actually do. Yeah, I didn't like the biker stuff. I, I feel that there but was... But you were, you got into a group. I did. I did it twice, but it wasn't my thing. And, and can, you know... Can you say what group you got into? I did the Outlaws. Uh, I did the Hells Angels. I didn't get into the Hells Angels, but I... I it, so my uh, Hells Angels infiltration was stopped short because my partner and I were at Laughlin when that shootout happened with that. Uh, angels and the Mongols. We had gone up there with the angels. And at that point, my agency said, you're done. I remember that. You're out. Um, but again, I, I feel like there there were some guys uh, who were great undercover agents, but getting that patch became so important to them that it was more important than making a good case. And I never felt like that. If I could do it from the outside... I would rather do it from the outside because I'm going to be myself, right? I'm not going to try and infiltrate um, the Latin kings and 
put myself over as a Latino, right? I'm an Italian American. I am who I am. So I would much rather hit them from the outside and become one of their go-to guys. Hey, you know, this guy's buying guns. This guy, he's buying dope, you know, and he, he's got a hustle going and we want to be part of it. That's how I operate. You don't have to be in the gang for them to want to buy something from you. It's almost better not to be with a lot of these organizations. It's better to be one of their go-to guys, right? Because they're all about the same thing. It's never ideology. I never worked any criminal organization. I don't care if they were supposedly white supremacists, you know, Latin kings, you know, black power, whatever it was. It was never about ideology. It was always about money. They're all about money. All of them. What was it like with the outlaws? So the outlaws were a dirty bunch, uh, for sure. And uh, but you you were in that one, right? So we worked. We uh, we were in an affiliate club that was patched under the outlaws. And again, that case um, was cut off early. After about it was about the same time, eight months. Uh, we were really making progress. Uh, you know, we had gone down to. They invited us down to Bike Week in Daytona. We had ridden down with them. And, and, you know, this is a guy who, you know, I could barely ride a Harley Davidson um, at the time. And You you told us a story about that. Yeah. And I think it's a great story. Can you tell that one again when you got the bike? Yep. So I got chosen. This was at the very beginning of my career, and I I was chosen uh, to be a part of that case, not because of my undercover skill, but because— I was the only other agent in the Atlanta Field Division that had a motorcycle license. And I had a motorcycle license because when I was like 18 years old in New York, I had a Yamaha Virago. I, I, did, I had no idea really how to ride a motorcycle very well, never ridden a Harley. And uh, the agent who had already been in with these guys was working with a task force agent. And when they got the invite to go down to Bike Week in Daytona, that task force guy, sheriff's department, said, "Man, that, we, we didn't we didn't sign up for all this. We're going to pull him out. So he needed a partner. So that's when I got the call. And on my way to Atlanta, I remember calling a buddy of mine in New York who who did ride motorcycles. And I'm asking him, I'm like, "Hey, man, how do you shift on a Harley? Is it is it one down and and four up?" And uh, he was like, "Man, what the hell are you doing?" And uh, when I got there that night, they gave me this this big chopper. Well, with the ape hangers and all that. And uh, they were like, all right, follow us. It was the agent and the two informants. And they take Who were off. already in the club. Yeah, they take off in the North Georgia mountains. It's nighttime. It's dark. Uh, it was drizzling rain a little bit. And I, you know, I don't know the roads. And, and, you know, these guys are doing 80 miles an hour. And, you know, I made about three turns before I dumped it and it ended <laughs> up in a ditch. And they had just redone this bike. You know, it was a stolen bike they had just put together and... And uh, I'll never forget, I was in the ditch, and the one big informant, when they finally realized I wasn't behind them anymore, and they came back, and I'm laying there, and the bike's all cracked up, and uh, he's standing over me, and he looks at the agent, and he goes, you want us to bring this motherfucker into the outlaw's clubhouse? He can't even ride a goddamn motorcycle. And uh, so I, I um, you yeah, know, my, your, your ego's just like, oh, man, forget it. So, you know, we, we picked up the bike and all my, my partner, he's, he's like, listen, we're going to, I'm going to call, get an ambulance. And we'll, and I was like, listen, cause I was banged up, man. I had road rash bleeding. I said, no, 
We're going to bend back everything we can on this bike. I can ride it, and let's go. So I, I at least earned the respect of the informants because I got back on the motorcycle, even though I, you know, they didn't respect me as an outlaw biker for sure. But what I did was when we went to the Outlaws Clubhouse in Atlanta, which if you've never been inside a outlaw, I don't mean just the outlaws, any outlaw motorcycle clubhouse, Hells Angels, Pagans, they're very intimidating, right? If, if you're not familiar with them. And I had no idea. I didn't know anything about outlaw motorcycle gangs. And, and here I am inside the clubhouse. And there was about... Surrounded. Six, there was about six members in there and, and the president. So I shut my mouth and I watched for about a half hour. I just watched and listened, kept my mouth shut. And then I decided to approach the president. That was the first person I approached. His name was Pierre. And I went up to him and I, and I said, I called him, sir. I said, sir, I introduced myself. I said, I just want to tell you that uh, I don't know your culture. I don't know your rules. And I certainly don't want to make a mistake or offend anybody or any of you guys. You know, I want to be one of you guys someday. I want to learn. I want you to teach me. So I appealed to his ego because these guys have and he big ate it up. And he loved it. Here was this big, young you know, uh, f guy he could form and mold, right? And, and he took me under his wing at that point. Had I gone in there and tough guided it and acted like I knew what I was doing, they would have sniffed me out right away. So the president of the outlaws took in this ATF agent, not knowing, and started molding him into yep. an outlaw. He, uh, he made me a green bean casserole every Friday. That was his thing, and it was awful, and, and the green place bee, was so I was about to say green bee casserole. Oh, it was terrible. But I ate it. I pretended I liked it. And uh, the, the clubhouse itself was, was disgusting. Um, just these, these guys are not clean. And, uh, you know, we were doing really good, and um, we were about, they were about to ask us to uh, probate and be prospects. And... The informants we had, the one guy was this huge, massive, 350-pound guy, hair down to his ass. And uh, I think even some of the outlaws were a little intimidated by him. I mean, he was a bad dude. And one night we're in there, and he decides he's going to fist fight me. He wants to fight. So, you know, you got to fight, right? These guys fight all the time. Fighting is a But he knew part you were undercover. Absolutely. But, he, you know, these guys, they're on meth. They're all whacked out, right? He didn't like me. He was the guy who, you know, had said previously, you know, you want me to bring this motherfucker, he can't ride a motorcycle. He never liked me. So, um, we start rolling around on the ground. This is in their clubhouse. And like I said, the other, you know, the outlaws, they weren't crazy about him anyway. So when they saw their opportunity, they took it. He's on the ground rolling around with me, so they foot stomped him. I mean, they took the bo their boots to his head, right? No kidding. Yeah, you know, all these guys liked me, didn't like him, so we're rolling around and on the ground. And he's a member. No, he was not a member. He was just, okay. He was a member of our affiliate club okay. that we had. Okay, all right. So, so they boot stomped him. And uh, 
So we leave, and again, like it sounds like a big deal, but it really wasn't because this shit happened all the time with these guys. So we leave, but he was pissed. I mean, he was he was lumped up. We went back to our clubhouse. He went home and got a gun and came back to the outlaws clubhouse, and you know, drunk, uh, tweaked out, waving a gun around, and they did what the outlaws do, man. They guy came up behind him with a lead pipe and they they crowned him man they crowned him and uh they call us at about two in the morning like hey come pick up randy and so we didn't ask questions we we get in our car and we show up there and now these guys who have always been so taking us in and friendly there was a different demeanor now there's one standing out front directing us go right over there turn the car off and we go over there and two of them you know drag him out with their arms under his and, and his feet are dragging. Like I said, he was a big dude. He looked like he had been dipped in a pool of blood. Wow. And his forehead was wide open. You could see brain. It, it had flapped over. And we're like, holy shit, he's dead. And they had him wrapped up in a uh, sleeping bag. And they put him in our car and they're like, handle it. So we're like, shit. So we didn't want to take him to the hospital in Atlanta. So we took him to a hospital in, I think it's Monroe, Georgia, like out, out uh, in the mountains, kind of where our clubhouse was. And, you know, so, of course, we, we just said, hey, man, you know, uh, we had made the story up that his wife called us and he had just came home like that. So we, we helped her out because we called her to come to the hospital. And, of course, the first thing they do is call the cops, right? Absolutely. So, you know, the cops show up and we never, we didn't break role. We stayed in role and said, we gave them our bullshit story. They didn't believe us. But you gave them your fake IDs and so yeah, forth. They, I mean, they, they're real. They're real. Right. And they knew nothing that you guys were undercover. Yep. And again, they didn't believe us, but they didn't really give a shit, right? Scumbag, scumbag biker, whatever. So, uh, you know, after that, you know, now these guys, we've handled the situation, no police involvement. Now they're ready to, to bring us in, you know, as outlaws. And that's when ATF decided, you know, he was a registered informant with ATF. And, you know, now he's, this guy's in a coma. And ATF said, man, you're out. We're, we're going to arrest everyone we can at this point, but you're done. Too dangerous. And, and you know, we, we're like begging. We're in a, the big boss's office saying, listen, we got eight months into this. That's why we're doing this, because these guys are violent, right? Isn't that why we're there? Yeah. But that was that. So, you know, that, the biker case has kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. And I, I knew that wasn't, and again, I've, I say this all the time, I'll say it again. You know, as, as romantic, you know, as people think these cases are, these biker cases, I didn't view that as, as why I was with ATF. Because if, if you went around this country and you asked every chief of police, every sheriff, you know, what's the biggest problem in your jurisdiction? Not one of them's going to say outlaw bikers. It's, it's the gangs, the street gangs that are downtown, you know, shoving their guns in people's faces and pulling triggers and shooting, you know, innocent bystanders in their drug wars. You know, and that's why I was on ATF. That's who I was going after. So then you went into, at some point in time, you did the storefront yourself. Yep. How was that? 
You I know, mean, I, what, what, what's, give me a case. Explain what you're doing. And just what was one of the interesting things somebody brought in to want to sell to you? I got a call. I, I kind of fell into my, I didn't know what a storefront was. I got a call from an agent in Augusta, Georgia, who said, hey, we got this informant. The cops I'm working with hemmed him up. He's a tattoo artist, and he wants to flip. He doesn't want to go back to prison. So they want to do a storefront, a, a fake tattoo shop. You know, because Augusta, Georgia, you see the masters, right, and all the pageantry and the beauty. Right. Riddled with gangs. I mean, just a, a tough city, like incredible gang, home invasions, armed robberies. It was it was a rough city. And uh, they wanted to address the gun problem and the gang problem. So my buddy up there calls and says, hey, man, will you do the undercover? You know, they don't have a lot of guys there that can do the undercover that won't be recognized and all that and, and have the background. I said, absolutely, because I never said no, right? You know? No. First I said, what's a storefront, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, they set up a tattoo shop with this guy as a tattoo artist, and I came in as the manager of the tattoo shop. Um, you know, it, like most tattoo shops, we had the chair and all the ink and all that where he did the tattoos, and then we sold a bunch of paraphernalia, whatever it was. Um, so... It, you know, I got up there really not knowing what to expect. And we just kind of put the word out. Um, we didn't really have informants working on that one. But it was in a bad part of the city. Um, there was a nightclub across the street. And the first thing the cops told me, they said, don't ever go in there. You know, no, white people don't go in there. So the first thing I did, me and my partner, we went in the, the nightclub and met this waitress who was a super nice girl, and we just, like, glommed onto her. Gave her a huge tip. We ate the chicken wings there. They actually served chicken wings. I don't, I, you don't even want to know, like, what the place looked like, and I'm sure what the kitchen looked like. <laughs> but, you know. You got to do what you got to yeah, do. Yeah, we had a mission, man. So we ate the chicken wings. We gave her a huge tip, told her we were across the street, told her we'd hook her up because she wanted to get a tattoo covered up. And she goes, why don't you guys come back here at night? Because we went during the day when it was a little safer. So we came back at night. And I mean, the rap music, right? And blaring. And I, don't, I hate loud music. I hate rap music. And we couldn't have been more out of place. But part of you know, being an undercover agent is, is just looking like you're supposed to be there. Wherever you are, act like you're supposed to be there. And that's what we did. And she... We found her, and she started bringing people over to us, introducing us. Hey, these are the guys with a tattoo shop just open across the street. Oh, man, I need this. I need to Hey, come on over. We're handing out business cards. These guys start coming over. And, you know, these were, these were gangbangers. These were thugs. But we in the were, neighborhood. Absolutely. In the city of Augusta. But we were offering them something that they wanted, right? Tattoos. So that's how it started. And we were getting, you know, we were, they were getting inked up. We were talking the talk. They started selling us some drugs, some guns, and it spiderwebbed. I mean, word got out in the community and it spiderwebbed. And you asked about the strangest thing I ever, you know, this is a tattoo shop. And we, we said we buy guns. We'll buy dope if you have it, if we can make money on it. But, you know, my hustle was that it's I bought guns. Right. My hustle was I bought guns. I had moving trucks. We had moving trucks. We would show them with furniture. You know, when I got up to like 100 guns, I would, I would secrete the guns in, in the furniture and I would have a fake like bill of laden and all that. And 
I would take them up to New York and I would sell them to all my gangster buddies and make a shitload of money. They loved that hustle. They were like, okay, that's why he's buying guns, right? Yeah, right. you know, because cops. Because they want to know what you're going to do with them. Exactly, right? Otherwise, so you got to have cop. an in story so they yep. know they're not going to get would, jammed up with the gun. And physically show them. And I showed them these are moving trucks, man. This is what we do. If Johnny Law pulls me over on I 95 or something and, and wants to search the back of my truck, Man, I'm just, I deliver people's furniture. I don't know what they got in their shit. I don't search it, right? And they were like, right on, man. By the end, 12 months later, we had bought 430 crime guns. 430 crime guns off the streets of Augusta and wrapped up probably seven or eight gangs. But you asked about the strangest thing. I had a guy come in one night with a box and he puts it on the counter. I'm like, what's up? And he goes, man, I got something for you. And this was not a guy I had dealt with before. He had just heard about us. And he opens up the box and he pulls out a, a prosthetic arm. I look in the box and it's like brand new prosthetic limbs in this box. And he goes, man, I, get, he goes, man, I can sell this to you at the low. Right, on the low price. And I just looked at him. I go, what the fuck am I going to do with that? It's a tattoo shop. And yeah, I, that's why I said to him. I looked at him. I go, what the fuck am I supposed to do with that? And he looked me in the eye and answered back right away. He goes, I go, I go who am I going to sell that to? And he looks, looks me in the eye and goes, to a motherfucker with one arm. And I was like, okay. Right? Yeah, that, okay. That's a good answer, right? I said, listen, man, you know, we're not a fucking pawn shop. I, you know, I sent him packing. And we found out that he actually worked at the Georgia Medical College in Augusta and had stolen all those uh, prosthetic limbs. And uh, that, that was probably, we, I had a, another guy come in with a box of puppies. He was wearing like a security guard jacket and shit. He had a box of puppies. And this was back when. Puppies. Remember, yeah. Remember they, they had like uh, pet stores in the malls, remember? Yeah. He was a security guard at the mall. He had stolen like 12 puppies. They were in this box. And uh, you know, he brought them to sell them to me. And again, I was like, man, get the fuck out of here with your puppies, man. Um, you know, but that, that happened rarely because, you know, we were pretty strict about, you know, I would tell him, I say, listen, this is not a pawn shop, right? You either get a tattoo, you know, or, you know. You bring me you, a gun. You know, bring me a gun, you know, that I can make money off of. So. You know, and that, that would happen sporadically throughout all the storefronts that I did. But as we elevated our game and the storefronts went kind of from that street level to the more uh, organized crime level, it happened less and less.